Hello, welcome to the Positive Energy Podcast. I'm your host, Ian T.D. Thompson. The Positive Energy Podcast is the official podcast of the University of Ottawa's Positive Energy Initiative. The initiative seeks to strengthen public confidence in Canadian energy policy, regulation, and decision-making through evidence-based research and analysis, engagement, and recommendations for action. Today on the program, we are talking with Dr. Monica Ganninger, who is Chair of Positive Energy and Director of the Institute for Science, Society, and Policy at the University of Ottawa. In March of this year, Positive Energy published a report entitled Canada's Energy Future in an Age of Climate Change, How Partisanship, Polarization, and Parochialism are Eroding Public Confidence. Dr. Gadinger, who co-authored the report alongside Michael Cleland, joins us on phone from Ottawa to talk more about the report and the research initiative. Dr. Ganniger, thank you for joining us. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. So as an introductory podcast and as the chair of Positive Energy, can you tell the listeners about your vision for Positive Energy and how the idea for the initiative initially came about? Well, I guess I would begin by saying it's no secret that issues around energy have become much more controversial and conflict-based over the last number of years. And so in about 2014, 2015, Uh, I realized that there was an opportunity to use the convening power of the university to try to bring various stakeholders from the energy sector together, from business, from government, from indigenous organizations, from environmental NGOs, to really try to work on how we could strengthen public confidence in energy decision-making. So we use the convening power of the university to bring those folks together, but we also do more than that. We undertake solution-focused applied research to try to inform energy decision-making and to try to contribute to resolving some of these very contentious issues. So with that as kind of the backdrop of creating positive energy, what do you see the initiative uniquely contributing to the Canadian public policy landscape? Well, I think what's really different about the work that we do, there are lots of folks out there doing great work. I think what sets the work that we do apart is that our focus is on decision-making arrangements and public confidence in energy decision-making. So, you know, a lot of what we've seen over the last number of years, whether it's conflicts over pipelines or, or windmills or, you know, you name it in the energy space, folks are often critiquing decision-making processes. They're, from their perspective, they're not open enough, they're not transparent enough, there aren't enough opportunities for engagement, for meaningful engagement. You know, a whole host of criticisms that are being leveled against their decision-making processes. And so that's what we zero in on is how can we reform our decision-making processes when it comes to energy, whether it's policy or regulation, to try to strengthen public confidence in, uh, in those institutional arrangements. As mentioned on the onset, Positive Energy released this report, Canada's Energy Future in an Age of Climate Change. The report starts off with a rather holistic examination of the current energy landscape, shifting from a more unified approach to the increasing polarization, partisanship, and distrust that is felt today with both the process and content of energy decision-making. Can you tell the listeners what the report wishes to shine a light upon? Well, I think if I were to say it in a very soundbite way, it would be that politics matters. 
So what we've seen over the last number of years is increasing polarization in our debates around energy and, and climate. So if you think back to 2015, when the federal election took place and the Liberals were brought to power, very quickly they went into a negotiation process with the provinces and the territories and developed the pan-Canadian framework for clean growth and climate change. And, and the, at that time, the federal government and the provinces were largely singing from the same song sheet in terms of trying to address climate imperatives, in terms of putting in place a price on carbon and the like. But fast forward to 2019, and we've seen a number of provincial uh, elections that have really changed the tone at the provincial level, seen increasing pushback in a number of jurisdictions around carbon pricing. We've seen growing levels of, of mistrust and certainly mistrust of elites and of decision-making processes over that time, and a lot more fractiousness in our energy decision-making. And so that's what this report is really trying to shine a light on is, you know, if we don't address some of these situations, everybody loses, whether you're wanting to develop energy resources in Canada or whether you're wanting to try to address climate imperatives, uh, having highly polarized and particularly partisan polarized political context on these issues uh, is really challenging to make any positive progress. So as it's hinted in the title, there really is no cogent Canadian energy narrative in an age of climate, and the debate is often focused on the domestic rather than the larger global energy context. Now, one of the recommendations in the report is to have energy policy take into account climate change policy and vice versa. Yet at the same time, most provinces and the federal government have separate environmental and energy ministries. Why is it important? for the breakdown of these policy silos to occur. I think silos is exactly the right word. Um, one of the things that we call for in this report is to make climate change policy as if energy mattered. And, and what we mean by that is that climate policy has not always taken into consideration the full range of energy imperatives, whether those imperatives are you know, economic or security and reliability or broader environmental issues. And in the absence of really trying to address Canada's energy future in an age of climate change in a holistic way where you're making climate change policy as if energy mattered and energy policy as if climate change mattered, that we're often seeing taking one step forward and two steps back, and that Canada has not made the kind of progress that some would like to see, whether it's on the reduction of GHG emissions front or whether it's on the development of Canada's energy resources. As we head into the federal election this fall, there have been a few discussions on trying to unite Canadian energy. One of those is Conservative Party leader Andrew Scheer's Energy Corridor. Do you think a national energy strategy could facilitate making climate policy as if energy mattered? Potentially, potentially. But I think, you know, the real question is, what is Canada's energy future in an age of climate change? And, and we don't have a consensus vision on that in the country. What we have instead is really two polarized visions, one of which starts from 
the climate science and Canada's commitments at Paris uh, and is really looking for aggressive action on reducing uh, GHG emissions and very much focused on reducing those emissions domestically. And then the other vision one could look at or think about is as starting from sort of a Canada energy, Canada's energy in the world vision and starts from the perspective of economics and global energy demand where credible scenarios for future energy demand show a very strong continued place for oil and gas, even in scenarios where the Paris commitments are met. And so then the question becomes, okay, so where does Canadian oil and gas production sit in that global energy future? And so we're not necessarily seeing a consensus vision. What we're seeing instead is often sort of two quite polarized visions without a lot of room in in between them or places where they're meeting. On top of the fact of these two competing narratives, the report also pinpoints the uniqueness of Canada as a Western democracy in addressing the transformation of its energy system and contributing to climate change. Can you explain to the listeners what makes Canada unique in addressing energy policy compared to other jurisdictions? I think this is really, you know, you're hitting on one of the really key messages of the report is that it's very important to take the Canadian context into into consideration. And so, yes, as you note, uh, Canada is a Western industrialized democracy, which obviously means that decisions need to get taken in ways that are taking into account people's opinions and, and views are done in, a, done in a democratic way. We're also a federation, and Canada is a federation in which the provinces have, you know, extensive jurisdiction jurisdiction over the development uh, of energy resources, renewable and and non-renewable alike. And at the same time, we have a very large resource base from an energy perspective. So yes, of course, people think of oil and gas, but it's also a tremendous potential in the hydropower sector, capacity and, you know, you name it, geothermal, solar, wind, nuclear. There's a whole host of really substantial uh, resources at Canada's disposal. And thinking through how does one chart the country's energy future in an age of climate change when you've got a variety of different jurisdictions with different energy, different energy profiles and different energy resources at their disposal makes for a pretty challenging environment within which to not only make climate policy, but also to make energy policy. The report delves into the perils of dangerous optimism, describing how large-scale energy changes to reach GHG emission targets and the subsequent modeling miss out on important considerations based in reality and feasibility. How can decision-makers be more realistic when it comes to addressing energy system change? Yeah, I think this is really key in the sense of, you know, when it comes to reducing the emissions profile of our energy systems, these are large systems with long-lived physical infrastructure, long-lived capital assets. You know, they take time to change. And I think this comes back to the points that we make in the report around making climate change policy uh, as if energy mattered. And by that, we mean, obviously, you know, making climate policy that deals with climate issues and reducing uh, GHG 
energy emissions, but that also takes into consideration the importance of other energy imperatives as well. So that's, you know, energy demand, people's demand for energy and where that, that's likely to go in the future. It's affordability. People want to have affordable energy. It's not just people, it's businesses as well in terms of their own competitiveness are looking for affordable energy, but they're also looking for reliable energy, right? Ensuring that energy is, is reliable, it's, that it's secure. And then there are also other environmental issues beyond the climate that people are and communities are concerned about as well. And so when it comes to, you know, us thinking about as a country, how do we transform our energy systems? It's really important to take that holistic approach because on the one hand, we might say, okay, you know, we want to make sure that we increase the electrification of our energy systems in order to be able to reduce GHG emissions intensity because we have a a very clean electricity system, a low emitting electricity system. Doing that in a large scale requires a tremendous uh, amount of infrastructure. And then that gets into, you know, will communities accept, will they support large-scale infrastructure uh, developments across the country? And again, I'm not suggesting here, or we're not suggesting here that they won't, but what we're trying to point to is this importance of making climate policy as if energy mattered, looking at all of these imperatives to try to make sure as climate policy is developed, that it's developed in ways other taking into account some of these other imperatives as well to ensure that we don't take one step forward and two steps back with social opposition. Yeah, I guess it's it's the idea of ensuring that when they are modeling for these large scale reductions, that all those variables are accounted for. I think that ties nicely to my next question. In this report, it's noted that Canada is trying to move towards a low emission economy However, there are a number of major changes that are also occurring, very systematic changes. This report outlines five, five growing sources of large-scale uncertainty. Can you briefly describe to the listeners these five drivers that the report outlines? Yeah, absolutely. And I think I just want to pick up on something you said, which is modeling. A lot of energy models will look at, you know, here's where we can take our energy systems if we deploy technology X, Y, and Z without necessarily taking into account will there be political, social, economic, and the like support for moving in those directions. So that's kind of what we're trying to point to here with some of these additional growing sources of, uh, of uncertainty. And I'll quickly run you through these five sources. One of which, and we've already been talking about it, is growing political uncertainty. We're seeing, and it's not just in Canada, it's in other countries as well, growing levels of, of polarization, of you know, increasing partisanship around issues. We're also seeing declining levels or at least certainly changing levels of trust. So who or what people trust with what commitment is changing over time. And, and certainly, you know, elites and some of our decision-making processes are often coming up short in the eyes of the public. We're seeing growing levels as well of economic uncertainty. I mean, who would have thought five or ten short years ago that we would have seen Brexit in the United Kingdom or much greater levels of of economic protectionism coming from the United States? And, you know, that actually changes the environment fairly substantially in terms of uh, trade and, and the economy. We're also seeing tremendous technological changes. There are very fast-paced 
emerging technologies that can be highly disruptive to not only energy systems but to society uh, writ large. Those need to be taken into account. So whether it's artificial intelligence or genetic engineering or the like. And then finally, the very real impacts of climate change itself. You know, we're increasingly seeing these impacts and they're going to be creating growing demands on the part of the public for uh, attention to adaptation of our systems to uh, the impacts of climate change. Mm -hmm. Yeah, those are very large-scale sources of uncertainty. The idea of, you know, the lack of public trust, the growing inevitability of these large-scale technological changes. Now, Canada, for the most part, sits somewhere in the middle and doesn't have direct control over these drivers. For instance, many low-emission technologies will come from outside of our borders. From your perspective, what elements of these drivers can Canada and its decision makers actually control? Well, I think the first thing is for them to take those drivers into account because those five drivers, I mean, they're not just going to be affecting energy decision-making and climate policy decision-making. They're also going to be affecting every single area of public policy. So decision-makers really need to take that into account. So when they're thinking about making policy, recognize that they're making it in an environment of lower levels or certainly fluctuating levels of public trust with rapid, highly disruptive and unpredictable technological change. So really try to think about how our systems can, can be addressing some of those factors. And I think we also need to be working on them, right? So to really try to build trust in our decision-making systems, to try to better anticipate where some of the technological changes uh, might be in the future, what they might have an impact on, how those sorts of changes could be built into policy up front as opposed to be always being reactive to some of these changes. And of course, also when it comes to, you know, the very real impacts of climate change itself, you know, ensuring that there is that attention to, uh, to adaptation and thinking through, well, how does one balance or how does one work through not only mitigation for climate change, but also adaptation as well, because there will be growing calls on public resources to address that. Yes. So what I'm hearing is that Canada has to be very much proactive in addressing these drivers rather than being a passive player with it. Is that a correct assumption? Oh, I think that's exactly right. I think that's exactly right. I think, you know, many of our decision-making systems were built at a time when, when change was perhaps a little bit more incremental. You know, technological change was sort of punctuated by breakthroughs here and there, but it wasn't the same kind of fast-paced highly disruptive change that we're seeing now with with technologies like artificial intelligence and robotics and the like. And so our decision-making systems need to be, and as much as they can, trying to keep pace with that, which is a highly challenging thing to do. It's a very tall order. But one thing that they can do is to be doing a better job of trying to anticipate and trying to be um, a little bit more proactive, to, to use your word, rather than reacting and finding themselves putting in place policy measures that maybe made sense two years ago and don't make sense you know, two years down the line. I wanted to switch directions a little bit and talk about this other aspect of a report I found quite interesting. And that's the use of language in climate change and energy-related debates. To quote the report itself, the dangers of vocabulary, what are some of the less constructive words or phrases that contribute to the fractures found in Canadian energy and climate debates? 
Yeah, this is an area where it doesn't necessarily get a lot of attention, but it, but it really should get a lot of attention. The way that these debates are, the, the language that's used in debates matters. So for example, I'll just give you a couple of examples here. So the word clean. The word clean is used to mean multiple things depending on who is saying it. So when, when one talks about clean energy, it's often used to uh, refer to low emitting energy sources of energy generation, notably electricity and, and in particular renewable energy sources. But the you know the reality of energy is that any form of energy has environmental impacts. So while a particular form of energy might be clean with respect to you know GHG emissions or lower emitting with respect to GHG emissions, it might actually have environmental impacts beyond the climate that communities may or may not be supportive of. So I think this word clean and, and it has tended to you know be quite closely associated with renewable energy. But yet in other sectors, in the other energy sectors, for example, in oil and gas, if there are measures that are being taken technologically to reduce the emissions profile of energy production and energy consumption, oil and gas production and consumption, does that constitute clean? Is that seen as clean or is that not seen as clean? And so I think that kind of language is just an example of, of language that sort of sets things up in a binary fashion, kind of us against them, and can be polarizing. Mm-hmm. So how might energy decision makers move away from that fuel determinism in their choice of language. I think this is really an interesting area where hopefully we'll see some some change over time. I mean, you know, at, at Positive Energy, we have adopted the language of low emissions as opposed to clean or as opposed to low carbon. I mean, again, I'll give you another example with low carbon. That's often taken to mean no carbon, which again, may or may not be the way our energy systems will or need to go in the future. Many credible energy scenarios continue to see a for oil and gas, but clearly with mitigation technologies to reduce the, you know, the GHG impact of those energy sources. And so then, you know, if the issue is emissions, well, let's use the language of emissions as opposed to saying low carbon or clean, which sets things up in a binary fashion that can be antagonistic and can actually shut down conversations as opposed to opening up conversations where there can be many shared interests. So the report was released in March of this year. A few months later, elements of the debate have shifted. One of the most significant is the passage of Bill C-69, arguably controversially after a significant period in the Senate. What are your thoughts on Bill C-69 and the new legislation in the context of this report and what we have been talking about today? There's no question that the decision-making systems that we have for energy, for climate, but certainly for energy, they need to be reformed. Most of these systems, decision-making systems, were put in place in the 1950s when Canada was beginning to develop its energy resources in much more substantial ways. And if you think about the 1950s, well, this was a time where socially, technologically, in terms of values, it was a much different context. You know, if you fast forward to 2019, you know, people trust less, we've got fast-paced 
psychological change. People want to be involved in decisions that affect them. So there's a much more emphasis on democratization of decision making. We have indigenous governments and indigenous communities and, and indigenous rights when it comes to energy decision making. So there's no question that the context within which decisions about Canada's energy future are, are being made, that that context has changed a lot, which means our decision making systems need to change along with it. So there's no question they need to be reformed. Now, the question is, does Bill C-69 get the balance right? And, you know, really in any decision-making system around energy and around energy and, and environment needs to strike what we refer to as a durable balance. So, you know, it's a balance between economic, environmental, and security imperatives that will stand the test of time. And I think it's a very open question as to whether Bill C-69 got that balance right and whether it will put in place a more predictable, certain decision-making system or whether it will put in place a decision-making system that is actually less predictable, perhaps more politicized, and perhaps even more critiqued than the systems that we have now. Do you see any of the changes or the bill as a whole? Do you think it will be able to strengthen public confidence in energy decision makers. Again, I think it remains to be seen. You know, the devil is in the details, as they say, and much of this comes down to the how. How will it be implemented, and will it be implemented in ways that will, you know, respond to some of these new imperatives that we're seeing in decision-making around, the, you know, the need for openness, transparency, engagement, opportunities for communities to be, and citizens to be involved, and, you know, and to reflect on, on decision-making that affects them in the energy sector, but will it respond to those? imperatives, but will it also at the same time create a workable balance with the needs of, of investors who have a need for timely and predictable decision-making processes? There's no investor that expects that the answer coming out of a decision-making system should be a yes, but what they do expect is a predictable system where the rules are clear and where the steps of decision-making are clear and where they know what they need to do to put forward a proposal for an energy project. If the goalposts are moving, that makes it extraordinarily challenging for investors and it can really reduce the attractiveness of Canada as an investment environment. And again, I think it remains to be seen as Bill C-69 is implemented, whether that balance will be struck and whether it will provide greater clarity or whether it will actually increase uncertainty in our decision-making systems. The next big event uh, happening this year is, of course, the October federal election. Noting that Canada as a country lacks a coherent narrative for energy policy in an age of climate change, how do you see the debate and framing on energy topics unfolding in this election period? Well, I, I think it's fascinating to see the extent to which energy and, and climate issues are becoming really pivotal issues, core issues in the upcoming federal election and the lead up to the election. I mean, look at all of the emphasis that's been placed on, you know, each of the parties coming forward with their plan, their, notably their climate plan. So, you know, on the one hand, I think this is very positive, right? So it's an opportunity to have a debate. It's an opportunity for Canadians to learn more about these issues, to develop their own opinion about the issues, to obviously vote on these issues as well. So there's, you know, an opportunity to resolve some of these challenges. 
At the same time, I actually find some elements of this very concerning because what we're seeing the parties doing, as parties do, is, you know, trying to distinguish themselves from the other parties, but sometimes in ways that are polarizing. And so if we're, you know, actually if this process is leading to greater polarization, in particular polarization along partisan lines, that's highly concerning. If we get to a, a point, and I think we're already there on some issues, where, you know, whether one supports the carbon tax or not depends on which party you belong to, I think that's actually really problematic because it leads to a situation where partisan identity is then what decides what opinion is on an issue as opposed to evidence and considered reflection on these issues. So we'll see where it goes in the election, but I think there's room for optimism, but there's also some room to be concerned. One of the recommendations of the report is the need to avoid that partisan polarization with these energy issues, noting that everyone loses with wild policy swings. How might decision makers of, of every variety, whether they be regulators, policy analysts, or politicians, how can they realistically mitigate or navigate through this polarization? That's the, the fundamental question. I think, you know, the first stage is realizing that there's a problem. And certainly, you know, a lot of folks in the energy sector, regardless of whether they're in industry or indigenous communities or environmental NGOs, are frustrated by the current situation where, you know, one day there's a carbon tax, the next day perhaps there isn't. A lot of fractiousness between the federal government and the provinces uh, over issues around energy and climate. And that creates a lot of, you know, a lot of policy uncertainty and a lot of instability, right? So it's, you can have these wild swings in policy, which again, are certainly not good for the investment climate uh, when it comes to developing Canada's energy resources, regardless of what those resources uh, are. I mean, we often think of pipelines, but it's any energy project, including, you know, energy projects with, for renewable power, for example. But it's also highly frustrating, you know, for folks in the environmental movement who really want to see sustained, ongoing, aggressive action on climate change, where, you know, one day there's a lot of movement and optimism, and then the next day um, there isn't. So I think the first step here is really to realize, for the country to realize that this is problematic. This is not helping the country move forward either on energy or on climate. And these things don't need to be put in binary positions with respect to each other, right? I mean, there are ways to make steady, positive progress on developing resources, doing so in a responsible fashion, reducing Canada's emissions over time. And Canadians, we do a lot of public opinion polling, Canadians are far less divided on these issues than, you know, than what we read in the papers might have us believe when we're listening to some of our political leaders debate the issues. That's quite interesting, that idea that we may think that we're more divided, but when we actually get to the issues, we are less so. It's also quite interesting to hear that we do lack that ability to have a sustained policy when we have these wild policy swings, and then we're ultimately faced with this greater short-termism, which isn't what these issues ultimately require. Continuing on, the paper lays the groundwork for three broad questions that positive energy will be addressing over the next three years. The first one being working through polarization, the second one is roles and responsibilities among decision makers. And the third is models of and limits to consensus building. Can you briefly describe the lines of inquiry being tackled to address these challenges? 
Sure, I'd be happy. Uh, I'd be happy to. I think the first area around polarization, one of the things that we're doing that I'm the most excited about is survey research to get a better handle on how polarized are Canadians on these issues? If they are polarized, what along what issues specifically are they polarized? Where are the key lines of division in the country? And, and, and what's, you know, what's sort of um, behind those divisions? Is it ideological differences? Is it values differences? Is it different regions of the country, different ages, different genders? You know, all of that, uh, there's been relatively no research, survey research undertaken in the country to try to get at precisely sort of diagnosing how polarized the, the country is or is not, frankly. We're also in that research stream conducting research around how to address polarized context. How can decision makers navigate through polarized context? We're doing a, a lot of case study research to try to identify what are some you know, potential tools to operate and address some of these challenges. Uh, so that's in, in the area of polarization. And the second area around roles and responsibilities among decision-making authorities. There what we're referring to is really the sort of nuts and bolts of decision-making on energy and and what is the kind of respective roles and relationships between policymakers, regulators, the courts, indigenous governments, municipal governments, at the federal levels, at the provincial levels? I mean, this really comes back to, for Canada, that we've got this, you know, environment of, of federalism, that we're a democracy, and sort of how can we think about strengthening not only the clarity of the respective roles and relationships uh, among those authorities, but also strengthening the relationships uh, between them so we can get more coherence and consistency in, in policy and decision-making. And then the third area around consensus building is really trying to, you know, get a, a, a better handle on what are some of the most, you know, promising ways of, of building consensus, notably in polarized contexts, but what also, what are some of the limits to consensus building? So at what point do we need to be thinking about alternatives to consensus building and whether that's ownership or co-ownership of energy projects by Indigenous communities or by municipalities? Like, what are some of the other ways in which we can think about strengthening public confidence in, uh, in energy decision-making? With that as the backdrop and those core challenges, what can stakeholders expect from positive energy for the rest of 2019 and into 2020? Well, I think the short answer is thought leadership. That's what I'd like to see us bringing to these issues is really to try to, you know, shine light on some of these challenges, undertake research around them to try to get a better handle on not only the nature of the problems that we need to address to try to strengthen public confidence in decision-making, but also what are some of the things that we need to do that decision-makers can concretely do to strengthen public confidence. So we've got a conference coming up uh, in October where we're going to be releasing some of our research findings from the polarization research stream. We're just moving into this second area of research around uh, roles and responsibilities. So stay tuned for some papers coming out around that as well. And we stay very closely connected with leaders in the energy sector and the broader climate sector as well. Um, and so we're always trying to make sure that the work that we're doing is pertinent, is relevant, relevant, is timely, is getting into the hands of the folks who could benefit from it. Well, it sounds like the initiative will be engaged in some solid work over the next few years. Dr. Ganniger, is there anything else you would like to add before we conclude the interview? 
I think that the one thing that I would add is that I have, you know, the absolute privilege of heading up a team of phenomenal researchers. So this is a group of about 20 or so researchers that are everybody from professors at universities in Canada and the United States to very senior practitioners who are keen to roll up their sleeves and work with us on these issues to postdoctoral researchers, doctoral candidates, master's students, undergraduate students. We have an artist on uh, on the research team. We have a public opinion pollster, uh, Nick Nanos, on the team because we work very closely with Nanos Research. Uh, it is a true privilege to work with all of these highly talented and committed individuals who I have no doubt will be coming forward with research findings that will be highly relevant and useful for Canada in the coming years. Well, I think that's a terrific way to end off. Dr. Gattinger, thank you so much for joining us and for your time. And we look forward to the ongoing works of the Positive Energy Initiative. Great. Thank you. You have been listening to the Positive Energy Podcast. Today's show was produced, edited, and hosted by myself, Ian T.D. Thompson.